Hello and welcome to the Political Science Deniers podcast. My name is Shane Himes and today is the first day of the podcast. We are so excited to share this project with you all. We're also excited to share the project that produces this project, that being the Aletheia Initiative. The Aletheia Initiative Incorporated is a multimedia company that produces this podcast in addition to the Christian Theology Podcast as well as some written content and other various things like movie reviews and such for YouTube. But if you're interested in any of that, we would encourage you to visit our website. Uh, But for today, we are going to focus solely on this podcast, as that's what's important for right now. So if you would allow me to, for the next few minutes, I would like to introduce myself and then take us on a journey, a journey that somewhat goes through my life, but many of you can relate as well, and is going that journey is going to culminate in the realization that we must become political science deniers. So that's the question we're going to ask in this episode ultimately is why must we become political science deniers? Well, as I said, my name is Shane Himes. I've got undergraduate work that I completed in Bible. I did my graduate work in systematic and historical theology, and I'm currently finishing up my PhD dissertation, uh, obviously in theology as well. Hopefully that'll be done this month or next month. Uh, We're right on the cusp and hopefully going to finish pretty soon. But anyway, uh, I am a trained theologian, I guess you could say. Maybe it sounds conceited to call yourself a theologian, but anyway, I guess it's sort of what I am. It's what I do for a living. Uh, It's what I've dedicated my life to. But it's not just theology that I'm interested in uh, for reasons that we're going to get into here. I am also very interested in politics and in culture. My main motivation for this podcast is that when I look around and I see the political landscape and I see the commentators, the political commentators that are out there, there's obviously no shortage of political shows and people that you could go to for perspective on the latest events in politics and culture. But when I look around, although I see some Christians, I don't really see many people who are trained in theology themselves. Now, some of the Christians do a great job in their political commentary in their own right, But oftentimes it is inevitable that uh, issues of philosophy, of worldview, uh, issues that relate directly to faith and religion, they come up in modern politics. Really, I suppose they have always come up in politics, but especially so in the American context, they are really shining through. Uh, People are, are being pressed by cultural and political issues in ways that they have never been pressed before. And oftentimes there is a spiritual or religious element to it. Certainly there is an ethical element to it. Everything is moralized in our politics today. Uh, sometimes that can be a good thing and sometimes that can be a bad thing. Nevertheless, I just personally would like to see more people who are trained in theology add their voice to the mix and help Christians navigate some of these issues, and not just Christians, but people in general. Oftentimes, trained theologians do not consistently interact with politics. Sometimes you may have someone who will give one-off comments here or there, but there's no consistent engagement. And occasionally, if there is, oftentimes those people can be politically leftist in orientation because they are academics. 
So my motivation is to hopefully add a an academically trained theological voice uh, that is conservative to the mix. I want to engage in explicitly political content, not just content that touches on the Christian faith, though obviously we'll do a lot of that here, but I want my political analysis to be good enough to win over people, even if they don't necessarily agree with my starting point, with my faith, my Christian faith. So that's my my motivation, and hopefully that will make my voice somewhat unique among the very competitive landscape that is out there. As far as my journey, and maybe your journey, uh, if you're watching this, I grew up not really caring at all about politics. To my parents' credit, they did not force politics down my throat. They just let me have a great childhood, and so I'm very thankful for that, trying to do the same thing with my kids now. Um, I could not have told you who the vice president was when I was in high school. That would have been Joe Biden. It's, it's crazy to say that, and some people think I'm being hyperbolic, but I really could not have told you who the president or the vice president was. I knew who the president was. Could not have told you who the vice president was. I just was not interested in anything other than sports and hanging out with friends, it would seem like. Uh, not that those things are bad things for high school students, but I took it to the extreme. Just did not care about much of anything. And it wasn't until later when I got into college and I was really having to pay for my own stuff. And I was at one point working at this grocery store. It was called Price Cutter in Arkansas. I think it was a, a owned by Harps maybe, but it's no longer there. I drive back to my hometown and don't see it anymore. Something else took it over. Anyway, the point is I was working there and sometimes I would be stocking shelves. That was really my main job, but sometimes I would also go up and I would be a cashier and I would be checking people out. When I first got there, you know, wasn't really paying a whole lot of attention to how people paid for their stuff. Sometimes people would use cards. Sometimes, sometimes people would use cash. Sometimes people would break up their transaction, and I just didn't really care enough to ask why. Well, one day, I don't remember exactly why, but I started to notice that certain people's carts looked very similar to one another, and their cards also would look similar to one another. And so, eventually, I found out that the people who had very, very good-looking grocery carts, a lot of meat, uh, a lot of soda, a lot of snacks and energy drinks, things that, you know, 20-year-old me would have loved uh, but couldn't really afford all that much of because, you know, I was a broke college student. They were getting a lot of them, and they were all paying with the same cards, so I, I finally ask somebody, I don't even remember who I asked, but eventually I asked somebody and they said, oh, that's a, that's a food stamps card. I said, what's food stamps? <laughs> and they said, well, that's, that's when the, uh, the government gives you money to buy food for people who, who can't afford it. Now, obviously the idea at the time that, well, if somebody's poor and they can't afford food, I don't want them to go hungry, so I guess that's a good thing. But it did not take long for everything to click, 
less than a week after that. And, and for me to go, as somebody who could not have told you who the vice president was, to go, but they're not just buying like the bare minimum so that they don't starve to death. They're buying steak <laughs> and, and shrimp and energy drinks and soda and ice cream. What does that have to do with not starving to death? Uh, and, and where does the government get their money? <laughs> and then of course, you know, it, it dawns on me, oh, that's, that's taxes. And that's what we're giving to the government. The government doesn't produce money. We give the government money that we earned. And especially for somebody who didn't earn a whole lot of money at the time, whenever I would see money go out of the paycheck, I would be like, man, I really wish I could keep that extra 50 bucks or whatever it was in the paycheck that went to taxes. And I found out that that money was going to pay for other people's steak and shrimp and soda, stuff that they they certainly did not need in any sense of the word, and yet I was paying for it. And so that experience got me asking a lot of questions about how the world works. How do they get taxes? What's the tax rate? What do taxes go to? Why? How can I get on this food stamps program? Oh, I can't. Um, <laughs> it's it's um, it, it was it was an eye opening experience to say the least. But after that, I was totally engaged and have been totally engaged since. Though, as we'll get to in the journey eventually, I don't really like being engaged anymore. I guess I'm too uh, pessimistic and I, I know too much, or maybe I think I know too much and I don't really know, but I think I know too much and I know about how the world works. And it just can be depressing if you think about it too much, but we'll get there. 2016 election rolls around. And by this time, you know, I've read a few political books and I'm, I'm looking into political ideology. And as any good young person in there lower 20s, mid 20s is, I was a political idealist. I had figured everything out. I was a libertarian. If we could just all vote libertarian, then everything would would be much better. And so the 2016 election, it comes up and I'm also a, a Southern Baptist pastor at this time. And so, you know, a lot of people are debating Trump because, you know, he's, he's conservative-ish, sort of conservative. I mean, more conservative than, than Hillary was, but not really. Uh, and, and Christians were debating him. And of course, he's this eccentric, eccentric billionaire. Uh, he owns like strip clubs. At least people said that. I guess I never really looked that up. I'm, maybe he does. They would say, you know, he owns strip clubs and he's been divorced all these times and he's committed adultery. And how can we vote for Donald Trump? He's, he's not a Christian man. And so, you know, honestly, I, I pretty much bit into that uh, when I was in my in my younger days, I guess I could say. It's interesting, though, because on that election night, even though I had voted for uh, Ted Cruz in the primary, and then I voted for Evan McMullen in the general. And just to pause here, I think sometimes we forget this was a very common position. There were a lot of never-Trumpers, quote-unquote, or people who really didn't like Trump. Of course, a lot of people like him now. A lot of people hate him now. But uh, at the time, he had like the second highest uh, disapproval rating 
in history for a for a, a candidate who had won the primary. I think it was Hillary Clinton. Maybe had the highest. Uh, she she was like the only person who could lose to Donald Trump at the time. Anyway, I vote for Evan McMullen, who, if you don't remember, was the CIA guy who was touting himself as a conservative from Utah. He was he was Mormon. And it was easy for me to do because I lived in Arkansas at the time and Arkansas was going to go red no matter what I did. So I told myself I was um, acting as a good Christian by not casting my vote for, for Donald Trump. That night, though, things changed for me because I honestly had convinced myself that I would not be rooting for Trump or for Hillary. I would just not care who won because they were both not great politicians. Trump was not, you know, conservative or libertarian enough for me. He wanted tariffs and this and that, and he was against immigration and of course any good libertarian is for unlimited immigration. And so I wasn't really for for Trump, certainly wasn't for Hillary, but I kept feeling this tug on election night, and of course I stayed up till 3 a.m. like some of you may have and had a breakfast the next morning with another guy, but didn't matter. I was staying up till 3 a.m., watched the whole thing, and while I was watching, I could not help but root for Donald Trump. And I hated it. I didn't want to root for him, but I did. And looking back on it, it's because I know how bad things would have been if Hillary had won. I knew that in the back of my mind. I said, you know, I'm married now. Uh, we're thinking about starting a family at some point. Uh, I, we've got jobs, we've got a house payment. We, we don't need higher gas bills, which is obviously going to happen if a, a Democrat wins. They're going to make it harder to drill and uh, there's not going to be as much oil or oil is going to be harder to get and we're going to have higher gas prices. It's not really that hard to figure out. I don't need um, higher taxes, thought that. Uh, definitely hated taxes at the time, still do. And so I just, I, I felt myself rooting for Trump, even though I really didn't want to. And that changed me because I had to ask myself, why did my instincts tell me to root for Donald Trump? And it was obviously because it would be really bad uh, for the economy anyway, which is mostly what I cared about at the time. At the time, It would be really bad for the economy if Hillary Clinton won. After this... I, I began to take an open mind. Wasn't pro-Trump, but you know, I was willing to give him a fair hearing. I was beginning to soften also on some of my more uh, hardline stances on uh, if somebody has to be a Christian, should you vote for them, and what it really even meant to be a Christian or to do good or what goodness was. I was going through a lot of theological changes at the time as well. You have to check out the other podcast for some of that. But I saw that Trump was treated unfairly. I saw that the media was beyond hysterical when it came to Donald Trump. They would make the biggest deal out of nothing. And as somebody who was now um, more objective and had seen the coverage of all of the candidates throughout all of 2015 and all of 2016 and watching it you know, very intently, I saw that they were treating Donald Trump very unlike they treated Hillary Clinton or or any anyone else really, but especially Democrats. And then came the Brett Kavanaugh hearing. 
And I remember the Brett Kavanaugh hearing better than most people because my daughter Trinity was born right in the middle of that hearing. My dad is sitting in the hospital room. He's like a, you know, a diehard conservative guy at the time, still is. And he is just fuming mad for what the Democrats are doing to Brett Kavanaugh. Remember, they're, they're, they're claiming these just insane charges. The lady, I, I forget her name. I, I just said I remember the, the hearings better than anybody. The, the woman's name who was accusing him of raping her like all these years ago in college and nobody could corroborate it and she didn't come forward until he was going to be on the Supreme Court. It was obviously bogus. Anybody who was an objective viewer of the situation knew that it was bogus. And a lot of people had never really seen government officials act so brazenly. That's why my dad, somebody who had, who had paid attention for a long time, was so mad. He had never seen government officials act quite like that. And if you remember, it was after those hearings that people like Lindsey Graham, who had been anti-Trump and, you know, not definitely not pro-Lindsey Graham now, but he had been anti-Trump at the time, just like several other prominent Republicans had been still. They'd held out even to 2018 and they turned against the Democrats. They got behind Trump at that point because no one had ever seen, I mean, at, at least as far as I know and, and how people older than me have talked to me about it, no one had ever really seen government officials act so brazenly. Sure, government officials had done corrupt things. Like there were people who thought that at the time that the CIA had killed JFK. I mean, it, it wasn't like people thought the government couldn't be corrupt or government agencies couldn't be corrupt, but they had never seen it just so open, just so unashamed, so brazen, like I said. And this changed, I think, a lot of people. And I think it was the beginning of change for a lot of people. It was the beginning of the change for me. They had already been doing the nonsense with the Russia Gate, and it had been going on for a couple of years by this point. No one ever produces any real evidence. No one even had said what... Russian collusion would even be? Like, is Donald Trump talking on his cell phone in the Oval Office to Vladimir Putin? I mean, is that the is that the accusation? I mean, no one really knew. It was just these vague, you know, Trump and Russia things. And that was annoying, but, you know, it was what it was. But it was the Kavanaugh hearing that really turned a lot of people against Democrats. Uh, maybe that otherwise wouldn't have voted Democrat, but were at least more open-minded. I would have considered myself one of the more open-minded people toward politicians at the time because I didn't really like Republicans or Democrats. Like I said, I was still considering myself a libertarian at the time. But after this point, I had totally gotten behind Trump. Still wasn't his biggest fan. Still wish he would have acted a little more, acted a little more presidential. But yeah, definitely behind him after all of that. And I think a lot of people can say similar things about how they felt when they watched the Kavanaugh hearings. So if you're looking for one major reason why we should be political science deniers, probably the Brett Kavanaugh hearing is the tip of the iceberg because it's the experts, quote unquote, it's the establishment, it's all of the news people who are just openly telling us, you should believe this woman. And we're sitting here like, what do you mean? It's 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 a rape allegation from like 30 years ago. Nobody has corroborated it. Now you've got um, the the guy, the lawyer guy who who brings in the other women who are accusing Kavanaugh of being part of a gang rape. 
years and years ago, and there was even less evidence for that. It was all just so ludicrous that that is probably the tipping point for a lot of people because you're seeing the experts give you what is the established wisdom, what you should believe on TV. And it's not just wrong, because people have said wrong things on TV for many, many years. In the whole history of television, people have said wrong things. But this was just so obviously corrupt that, at least for me, it was it was the tip of the iceberg. Then, of course, you know where we're going with this. Then comes COVID. COVID, where, where do you even begin? That's a whole other podcast episode. But it was after 2019, going into 2020, that COVID happens. And I remember not really knowing what to think at first. Everybody was making it a big deal. Tucker Carlson, who I obviously trust, uh, he had said, you know, COVID was a big deal in China. Uh, he had the, the doctor from China on who had worked on the ground at the Wuhan lab saying that it had been leaked from the lab and saying she had firsthand knowledge of this. And uh, she was an expert in, in virology and, and um, biology, something something else. Anyway, she was this expert and she was saying this, this virus had been intentionally leaked by the Chinese and it is at least somewhat deadly. But then all of the politicians, the Fauci's of the world who we, we got introduced to at the beginning of 2020, they said it wasn't a big deal. I remember it was, um, oh, it was Nancy Pelosi. She was talking about just a week before the, the lockdown saying how, yeah, you know, we all need to go out and get Chinese tonight. Um, we, we can do that. Everything's good. Everything is, is safe. So all of that happens. The lockdowns hit. Not really sure what to think. I, I initially think the lockdowns don't make much sense. I'm like, you can't just keep everybody locked up. What about the jobs and everything else? But again, I'm somewhat still open-minded, assuming that, you know, okay, two weeks, they're going to see how things go. We're going we're gonna to get there. But like a couple of days into the two weeks, it dawns on you. you it can't just be two weeks. If the virus is here, it's going to spread if it's aerosolized. Speaking of the aerosols, then come the masks. Oh, the masks. I will do a podcast episode on the masks, even if no one wants to watch, because I have to vent about the masks. They're like my number one pet peeve was the masks. And the masks were a number one pet peeve because the very first thing people started asking was, should we wear masks? And I certainly had absolutely no idea about medical masks. I didn't know what they stopped, what they didn't stop. I guess I would have assumed that if doctors wore them and nurses wore them when they were doing surgery and dealing with patients that, well, they probably stopped viruses, I guess, or they helped stop viruses. I didn't know. So what did I do? Well, being the good PhD student that I was, I looked at the academic literature that was done on the topic. And to my surprise, I saw that every single randomized control trial that had ever been done on masks with aerosolized viruses, flu-like viruses, viruses that are you know deemed to be kind of contagious and somewhat airborne or, or at least spread by droplets, every single randomized controlled trial said that masks did not stop 
the spread. And most of them said that if you wore a cloth mask, then it would make it worse. <laughs> so, because, you know, you would just get, you get your face would get so dirty. It's a, it's a piece of cloth. It'd be like doing this uh, with your shirt and thinking that you're going to stop a virus. No, when, when they go in somewhere uh, where there's a deadly virus, they have on hazmat suits, not a, a handkerchief over their nose. So, so that was the first big, big red flag for me. And really probably what tipped me over the edge, if I'm honest, because then the rest of it came, you know, like, like I said, the lockdowns and then the rush shots, people have talked ad nauseum about the, the COVID vaccines and stuff, but it was the masks because I knew from looking at the data that it was very obvious that masks do not stop aerosolized viruses at least the vast majority of them, because the particles, the aerosols are too big or they're, they're too small. They're too small. They go right through the virus or right, right through the mask. And it wasn't just that the government was dumb. Like I already thought the government was dumb. I thought that the government was inept. Anything the government did was probably going to be bad. Again, more of the libertarian in me. But it wasn't just that the government was dumb. I saw the 60-minute interview that Fauci did where he explained this very thing. He said, no, no, the masks are going to make you think that you're safe, but really they're not going to stop an airborne virus. The aerosols are, are too small. They're going to go right through the mask. And that was exactly what I read. Uh, cause I think that happened in like January, but I, I saw, um, clips of it on YouTube after. And he's like, he's saying this, and then I'm reading the data that's been done on this. And something's very off. <laughs> it's not just that the government is stupid. We already knew that. It's that they were blatantly corrupt. They were just going to lie to your face. That's what the government was going to do, was, was to lie to your face. That was the first time I'd ever really realized, oh, they're not just inept. The government is corrupt and corrupt in a serious way. Now, you might think that wearing a mask is not a big deal, but I, I mean, as a taxpayer, certainly as an adult, as a reasonable person, I don't want to just be lied to by the government and them treat you like you're a child as if they know better than you. So when they're sitting there telling me that you have to wear a mask, not just that we think you should wear a mask, which would have been one thing, but that you have to wear a mask. That now everywhere I go, I'm having to wear this stupid mask and they're trying to put these stupid masks on two-year-olds. None of it works. And then there was very early, there were very early studies being done and uh, like speech pathologists and psychologists who weren't you know mainstream uh, uh, at the time, they were, they were speaking online and they were saying, you know, this could cause problems with speech impediments. This could cause problems with uh, psychological development. Kids need to see smiles. And of course, having a kid ourselves, we said the same thing immediately. We said, Trinity doesn't want to, to see a bunch of covered up faces. She wants to see smiles. On that note, it's actually, well, it's kind of sad, but it, it proved this point to us anyway, anecdotally, though I, I know it's backed up in, in the data as well. Our, we, we were, we're in Bloomington, Indiana. And if you don't know anything about Bloomington, Indiana, it is a very left politically, it's a very left town. 
uh, because the university. Well, we had masks longer than, than a lot of the country, and we had mask mandates at, at church. And uh, I, I, we just, our family just began to ignore them by 2021 because we were just done. But we were never going to put a mask on Trinity, obviously. But most people, uh, and, and I'm not saying they're bad for this because people want to follow the law. Uh, and, and I know all of them, and they're, they're very good people, all of them. But they were, they were wearing masks. And Trinity, when we would go to church, would just be very silent. She wouldn't really talk to a whole lot of people. And we just thought, well, it's just because she's kind of shy. But what was weird was she wasn't really shy around much, you know, in any other context. Uh, it's just pretty much when everybody had their masks on, which is what we, we confirmed here later. So then in, in 2021, it was, yes, the beginning of that summer, everybody was getting the COVID shots and they said, okay, we've had the COVID shots, so we're going to lift the mask mandate. And so it got lifted in Bloomington for like three months. And so one Sunday, like 90% of people at church have their masks on. The next Sunday, only like 10% of people do because the, 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 mandate had been lifted. And Trinity that Sunday was just so excited. She was running up to people. She was laughing. She was talking. Caitlin and I, my wife and I, we we were just stunned at, at the difference. And that's when we knew, you know, a lot of what these other psychologists and speech pathologists were, were saying about um, development, child development, IQ, and um, the importance of a smile and, and potential speech impediments that can result from the masks. All of this stuff, we we said, yeah, that's that's definitely a thing. I mean, it's we already knew it was a thing, but it just confirmed it with Trinity. Like that was really a thing. So, all of this to say, because I'll get off the masks now. That combined with the other COVID policies really just let me know that not only is the government dumb, they are corrupt. And I can no longer trust anything they tell me. It's basically the conclusion that I came to after COVID. It doesn't mean that the government's lying about everything. I'm not somebody who believes in every single conspiracy theory that you can cook up. Perhaps there are a few that have a little bit of legitimacy in my mind, but I'm not somebody who believes in all of the, you know, the conspiracy theories, quote unquote. But just because the government says something, that does not make it true. And I think that there are a lot of you out there watching this who can agree with this journey. After COVID, after the Kavanaugh stuff, Trump, all of it, but especially after COVID, it is extremely difficult for us to look at something that the government tells us and to just take it at face value. So why should we be political science deniers? Well, COVID uh, really showed us that experts, quote unquote, because um, it's not all experts. There were many experts that were speaking against the mainstream dogma that we were seeing as far as COVID went, but they were, of course, censored. We all know the story uh, with the release of the Twitter files and whatnot, but they were censored. Um, so experts, just because they're intelligent and just because they have academic training, that doesn't mean they're not bought off. 
And it doesn't mean that they're automatically going to be courageous. Sometimes for these experts, it's going to be very difficult for them to go against the grain because to go against the grain in our society is to go against the science, which will have to be another um, episode, I suppose. But if you go against the science, and by the science, we mean whatever the mainstream media deems to be the science, then if you do that, then you're not intelligent. See, it used to be that the people who made advances in science were kind of on the edges and they were questioning the mainstream and that's why they were able to make advancements. But now uh, we don't really do that, I guess. We don't really question the, the mainstream narrative. We just we just go with the science. Science isn't something you do. Science is something you believe in. <laughs> this, is, this is how spe- people speak of science now is as a religious object of worship. It's something you believe in. It's something you have faith in. Uh, It's something that you dedicate your life to as opposed to just the observation of the physical universe that certainly is limited in its own right. But no, it's, it's, it's a lifestyle. And so a lot of these experts, I can tell you as somebody who has been in academia, just because somebody is an expert, that doesn't mean they're brave. And oftentimes it can cost them to go against the grain. And that's exactly what we saw with all the COVID stuff. If you went against the grain, you lost your social media accounts. You lost revenue. You lost money. You lost the interviews that you were getting on MSNBC and CNN. It would cost you something to go against the COVID dogma. And for many experts, that was enough to keep them in line. Now, That doesn't mean that nothing they say is true. Again, obviously, experts usually in their particular field, they know what they're talking about. But it does mean that they are corruptible as well. The science is largely funded by government grants and such at these universities. So the science is very corruptible. This is another reason we must be political science deniers. The political science, the established wisdom of the day is oftentimes tied to dollars. It's really that simple. So that's another reason why we have to be political science deniers. I could go on, but this has already been long enough, especially for an introduction episode. But all of this to say, From everything I've said, yes, you have to be skeptical of the government. Be experts, though they do know their own fields. They're not always the bravest. They have families and things, too, that they have to provide for, and they just like money like everyone else. And also, they don't necessarily know things outside of their own field just because they are experts within their field. So if somebody is an expert in virology, that does not mean that they are an expert in economics. So, and and just because they're an expert in economics, that doesn't mean that they're an expert in politics or constitutional law or natural law or anything else. So these are all reasons to be a little bit skeptical uh, of the wisdom that we're given. Um, In conclusion, I would say this, just as a vision for this podcast and as... um, as we move forward with the political science deniers, I would like to offer serious political engagement and analysis with these issues that we face today. Um, I hopefully will not back down even if the issues are controversial. 
I think there is a lack of serious political engagement by trained theologians, as I mentioned earlier. And I hope that as a trained theologian, I can be someone that offers productive, beneficial uh, political analysis for our day. Um, I hope you'll at least think so. Hopefully at least some of the time I can do this. Um, but I think for now, that's going to be it. This has been a production of the Aletheia Initiative. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.